Thank you, John. You know, we never know what we're going to get when we are planning this service. Uh, it could be raining. It's Michigan. Maybe it could snow. Uh, we, we never know. And yet, this is about as glorious of a morning uh, as I think we could ask for. Maybe some of you are here saying, oh, I don't know, it's a little hot, it's a little... I'm okay with that. If I get a little sunburned while I'm preaching God's Word, praise the Lord for that. Uh, but I am so thankful that you've joined us together here this morning. This truly is one of my favorite services of the year. Uh, just the fact that we can gather together and proclaim the Word of God to one another and to worship our Lord and our Savior together in this place, uh, it, it truly is uh, magnificent. So uh, I, I'm so thankful that you've joined us. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open up the first John chapter 5. And as you do that, I want us to ponder this question together today. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does a Christian look like? What does a Christian act like? What would people outside of the church say a Christian is? You know, it's one thing for us to be able to answer this question to one another when we're gathered together in our church services and with our friends who know Jesus. And, uh, but but it's, a, it's something else completely different. If someone were to walk up to you after the service today and we're eating and they say, oh, we're a church, and they're like, well, what do you mean? What, what is a Christian? If they, if they ask you that question, how would you answer them? What would you say? What does that look like? So that's what we're going to kind of uh, discuss together here uh, this morning. And, uh, and, and I hope that we're going to have a clearer understanding of what that looks like after studying this passage of Scripture together. Uh, I don't know if it's possible to kill the, uh, the monitors up here, but I think that might be part of my issue here. And my ADA OSD disorder, my attention deficit ooh squirrel disorder, has turned into attention deficit ooh sound disorder. Uh, so, yeah. So let's look together at 1 John chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5, where it says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our first thing that I want us to look at and to discuss together this morning is that we are born of God. Now we're picking up in chapter 5 of 1 John, so I think it's important just to briefly note that the Apostle John has spent a great amount of time laying out in his letter to, to these believers uh, that uh, the arguments for how and why we should love others. Loving is, our, our love as believers is a major theme in the first book of 1 John. 
And he does this oftentimes by using parallelisms or contrasting things together. We see Christ versus the Antichrist, light versus darkness, truth versus lies, righteousness versus sin. Those are all themes that we find uh, in 1 John. The love of Father versus the love of the world. The Spirit of God versus the Spirit of Antichrist. And John attempts to explain the world in an uncomplicated way. He wants us to see that there's a lot of complicated stuff that goes on in the world around us, but, but there is a clear right and wrong. There is clearly what God wants us to do. Full stop, end of story. We can know how God wants us to live as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John also wants us to see that God is the source of all that is good and right. He is the source of light. He is light. He is love. He gave us light. He gives us the Spirit. He abides in us and we in Him. You see, we see all of those themes and concepts kind of picked up here as John is in the middle of his challenge to his brothers when he's saying he's taking a little sidetrack. Maybe that's why I like John so much and maybe he has ADOSD too. He, he takes his little sidetrack to kind of look at a little bit of who our brother is and how we're supposed to treat them. In verse 1 of our text it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The Bible uses a lot of different language for what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. You see, we're, we're called a new creation. We're, we're born again, a follower of Christ. We're saved. We're justified. We have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, just to name a few. And here, John says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You see, born of God carries with it that, that connotation, that meaning that we've been adopted into the family of God, that God has done everything necessary to bring us out of our fallen sinful state and bring us into and adopt us into his family. And when we're born of God, it has nothing to do with our own merit or our own doing. It's not because God needed me or God needed you. In the gospel that John wrote, John describes this as born again or born from above. In chapter 3, verse 8, before we get to John 3.16, we read Jesus' Jesus's words that say, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When we're adopted and born of God, we are brought into His family, made His sons and daughters, and we gain a full inheritance into the kingdom because we've been born of God and, and brought into His family. The Apostle Paul uses very similar language in Galatians 4, chapter, or verses 3 through 5. He says, in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were lost, we were captivated by the concepts of this world. But, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We who were lost and alienated and separated from God, we who were dead in our trespasses and enslaved to sin, God sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins so that we might receive his gift of salvation, his forgiveness, and be born of God. 
and adopted into his family, grafted into the vine of God. And there's such beauty in that simple phrase that we were born of God, found in this verse. But this simple verse also reminds us that the details matter and that theology matters. Because it also says that everyone who is born of God must believe the truth about Jesus. We must believe what is true about Jesus, that he is the Christ, as God's word reveals him to be. Look at that verse again. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You see, what we believe about Jesus matters. It's not enough to believe that he existed. It's not enough to think that he's a good teacher that we could learn from and apply certain principles to his life to make our lives better. It's, it's not enough to think that he was a, a wise prophet that was proclaiming the, the kingdom of God or the goodness of God. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one who was promised throughout all of the Old Testament, through generations that the prophets and the, that spoke of, that pointed to him, the one who would come. You see, Jesus was fully God and fully man. He had to be fully man because a blood sacrifice was, was required for the atonement of our sins. But he had to be fully God because only a perfect sacrifice, only a holy God could die for our sins. Otherwise, he'd be dying for his own sins. So Jesus is God who came in the flesh to die for our sins. And apparently this was, this was a problem for, for people that John was writing to. They must have been having some problems, and so he writes them this letter. There must have been people who couldn't wrap their heads around the depths of this truth. You see, maybe they stumbled and believed that either Jesus wasn't God, or, or maybe that Jesus wasn't actually human. We don't fully know. But in 1 John 2, verse 22, it says this, Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. See, John wants us to know Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is Christ. Jesus is who he said he is. Much like John said when he was praying, we, we're reminded of the early disciples saying, where else could we go, Father? Or Jesus, you have the words of life. You are the Messiah. You are the one who has promised. They knew it. They recognized it. And John wants us and his readers to realize that as well. Throughout history, different explanations have, have been put forward trying to, to make human sense of this. To try to make it so that, that Jesus wasn't really God or that he didn't really die on the cross for our sins. Because if people recognize that, then they recognize their need for redemption and for a savior. One such early theory was called docetism, and it, and, and it likely had its roots in some of this culture that was going on here. And we see it talked about later uh, by the early church fathers. And it contends that Jesus only appeared to be human. It was some illusion that he was human. He was really God the whole time, hot fooled you. But he was really God the whole time, and he only appeared to have human flesh. 
But Jesus didn't just appear to be in the flesh. He was truly God in the flesh. Jesus had come. The incarnation that God would come and dwell with us. And that He was the Christ. The, the, the theological term for the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man is called the hypostatic union. And, and not that you need to remember that term, but we need to fully grasp and understand that Jesus claims to be God in the flesh, and he, Jesus claims to be in the flesh. So he was both, or he is a liar. In John's second letter, chapter 1, verse 7, John continues to preach about the under, understanding the importance of this concept. And he says to them, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. If you're going to go out and you're going to talk about how great Jesus is, but you're denying the fact that he was God in the flesh, John says you're a deceiver. You're, you're the spirit of the Antichrist. You're spreading lies. Theology matters. What we believe to be true matters. And believing that Jesus is fully man is integral to the gospel. In Romans 10.9, we read, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Part of the gospel is that we must believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. He came, he lived, he died, he went to the grave, and he rose again victoriously over sin and death because the sacrifice was acceptable in God the Father's eyes. In Hebrews 2.17 we read, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to come in the flesh and be like us, his brothers, so that his sacrifice could atone, that he could be the propitiation for our sins. So God's judgment would be satisfied by his sacrifice. John wants to make sure that his readers understand this concept, and we need to make sure that people understand that Jesus is the Christ. And if you believe that, then you are born of God. And if you are born of God, that also means that you were born of and to love. Whatever else may be true of someone who is born of God, Christians must love one another. Look again at the second half of verse 1 where it says, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. You can't say, I love Jesus, but man, it's these Christians that I have a real hard time with. I love Jesus, but, but His bride, not so much. I love Jesus, but man, all these other Christians are just so annoying. That may be true. I may annoy you, but if I'm your brother in Christ, you must Love me. Sorry. I make it hard sometimes. But that's what we're called to do. Everyone who is born of God must, must, must love others. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now, that means, what does this look like? Well, our love means that we need to care for one another. We need to support one another emotionally and spiritually and sometimes even financially. 
believers from different backgrounds with different personalities and different perspectives and different ways of doing things and different ways of thinking about everything must love one another because there are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean we're always going to like them. You, you may not always like me, but you have to love me. And we must love them. You see, I, I like to think about it like, hey, this is a great passage of Scripture. This means Pastor Mike has to love me no matter how much I harass him. Well, aside from the twisting of Scripture I just did there, right? Pastor Mike does have to love me. And I, I like thinking about the fact that Pastor Mike has to love me, right? But this passage is also calling me to love Pastor Mike and to respond in love even if he's not doing the things that I like or would prefer. People will see your love for one another, and, and it's supposed to be evident that Christ is in you. In John chapter 13, verse 35, he talked about this in his gospel. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. How will the world around us know that we are believers in Christ? How will the people that we are trying to witness to and, and share the gospel with, how will they know what a Christian looks like? Well, they will see us loving one another in a way that is completely foreign to them. So, I ask, how is the church today doing that? How are you doing with that? Are we loving one another? It's not like this command to love is some obscure teaching barely mentioned in Scripture. It's written all over the New Testament. There's no escaping from this truth. There's no hiding from this truth. There's no hiding from the fact that if you truly are born of God, you must love others, but especially those who are part of the family of God with you. There's many places that we could look to see uh, this, this command for us. But, but the Apostle Paul's teaching on love in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14, he, he, after he's kind of been talking about this and there's been problems in his church in Corinth and, and you think you have problems with Christians in your life, there was so much infighting and, and stuff going on in that early church. This was all new to them. But in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Paul sums it up beautifully. He says, let all you do be done in love. What theologian helps us Understand that very simple verse. He says, when Paul stated, when all you do, let all you do be done in love, he had in mind the goodwill and benevolence that shows itself in self-sacrifice for others. Love requires an unconditional commitment to the loved one. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're like me. Sometimes, as fallen sinful human beings, all we do is look for the faults and the mistakes and the problems in other people. And, and when something's going wrong in my life, maybe more specifically, I, I, would, I might focus on what did that person do that contributed to my problem? And how can I blame them? And how can I be frustrated with them and annoyed by them? And why couldn't they just do it the right way? You see, this command... Let all that you do be done in love. It, it, it's written to a, a group of people that had struggled with one another. And, and it's this unconditional call to show grace and mercy that I've received from God to others. Without any qualifications, 
and without any yabbas. You see, they had gone through a lot in the Corinthian church. Among other things, they dealt with divisions and quarreling among members in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. They they had lawsuits amongst believers in in chapter 6. Selfishness about the the Lord's Supper and communion service together in chapter 11. They had jealousy over the spiritual gifts uh, in, in, in chapter 12 through 14, which includes the chapter on love in verse 13 that we think about love, but it's kind of about spiritual gifts. They had problems with disorderly worship later on in chapter 14. The Corinthian church at some times was a mess. So he addressed all those specific issues when needed. But he says, more than anything, let everything you do be governed by, encompassed by, wrapped up in a command to love one another. Yes, we need to work on solving those specific problems. But more than that, we must love. And John wants us to grasp that same message in his text. He says, if you know Jesus, you must love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Full stop. End of story. Like so many things, we're tempted to define love in a way that suits our needs. So John outlines for us what it means to love your brothers well. In verse 2, he continues, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God... And obey his commandments. On its surface, this sounds like a bit of a confusing answer. How do we know that we love others? Well, we love God and we obey his commandments. And that's how we know we love others. Yes, that's what the text says. Because our love for God is foundational for and to our love for others. If we don't have a genuine conversion experience and love for Christ, If if, uh, the love for God isn't the the top priority in my life, it's impossible for me to love my brothers well. It's impossible for me to love my family well. Our love for God is is the foundation of everything else. Without the gospel, we cannot properly love others. Because the gospel reminds us that we don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve God's favor. And yet... While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In his mercy, he gives us his grace and his kindness and calls us into a relationship with him so that we could be born of God. That is the kind of love that we're supposed to show to our brothers and sisters. They may not always deserve it. And they shouldn't actually feel like they have to deserve our love because we are commanded to love them because God loves And we want to obey Him. No matter what we feel like, we are called to love one another. That leads us to our next point this morning. Everyone who is born of God obeys the Father. Verse 3 continues this argument when it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Make no mistake. You can't say that you love God and then live any way that you choose. You can't say that you love God and then completely disregard what he says he wants for you in, in, in his word. We can't say that we love God and then just pretend that the commands of scripture don't exist. We are called to obey God. And it isn't easy. But he has given us his Holy Spirit that empowers us to be able to to accomplish and to do his will in a way that we could not do in our own fallen 
sinful human flesh. We could not live in a way that would obey God fully and to please Him. But now, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the power of God Himself is in us, and we can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So we can love those that don't deserve our love. Why? Because God has loved us. And we are called to do this, and we must obey God. But don't be mistaken. When you're born of God, obedience is not a burden. Obedience is, is not burdensome. Verse 3b says, His commandments are not burdensome. Why can we obey God? It's not burdensome to obey God. We can't act like this is some heavy weight or some difficult cross that I must bear. Oh, well, I have to love people, and I'm just going to... Yes, I'm going to have to do that, because I love God, and I'm supposed to do it. Oh, bother. It's like we're Eeyore. Oh, my goodness, these people around me, oh, they're just so terrible. And somehow I have to love them, but you know what? I'm going to buck up and do it, because that's what I'm called to do. That's not the love of God. That's the, the spirit of Chad, right? Chad might decide, oh, I'm going to buck it up and be strong and try to love these people that don't deserve it. Humanly speaking, I might be able to do that a little bit. But that's not truly the love of God. And too many Christians are acting like Eeyore. Oh, it's, oh bother. I've got to obey God. Oh bother. I've got to love these people. The God who loves us enough to give us eternal life, to give us this grace and his mercy, to give us this beautiful creation, to give us all these things in our daily life, the one who gives us everything, it is not burdensome to obey him. It should be our joy. It should be our privilege to obey him. Warren Wearsby makes this astute observation as he's talking about this passage of Scripture. He says, Everything in creation except man obeys the will of God. Fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word in Psalm 148. In the book of Jonah, we see the winds and the waves and even the fish obeying God's commands. But the prophet himself persisted in disobeying. Even a plant and a little worm did what God commanded, but the prophet stubbornly wanted his own way. Disobedience to God's will is a tragedy. But so is a reluctant, grudging obedience. God does not want us to disobey him, but neither does he want us to obey him out of fear or necessity. Yes, disobedience to God's will is a tragedy. But so is reluctant, begrudging obedience. God wants us to joyfully submit to Him and to live for Him. Obedience is not burdensome. Committing our lives to Christ means that, that He has given us everything. And we should joyfully submit to His authority in our lives. But because they don't know Christ, the world around us wants to believe that, that anything and everything other than what God teaches and commands us is true. And, and so that is wrapped up here. John takes this little transition. He's saying this is what you're supposed to look like as, a, as one who is born of God and as one who is a believer. And he's going to give us a brief contrast to the world around us. It, it's not so really with them. 
They can't do this because the, the Spirit's not in them. He, he doesn't say all these things here, but he, he talks about that in other passages in 1 John and in his Gospel. They can't do these things, but you who are in Christ, you can. But too often as Christians, we, we begin to fall back into the patterns of the world instead of conforming to God's command, instead of obediently submitting our lives to Christ because of the Gospel, we fall back into what the world thinks. We fall back into thinking that obedience is too difficult of a task. But if we're truly born of God, it should be our joy to obey and honor the Lord. We should want to, to do everything that we can to live a life pleasing to Him, because He has done everything necessary to accomplish our salvation, and His Holy Spirit dwells in us. Look at verses 4 and 5 of our text, where John transitions and he says, For everyone who has born, been born of God overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? After he lays out this pattern, he says, this is what you have to look like. He basically is saying, and it's not going to be easy because everyone around you is not going to live that way. But we have to overcome the world. We have to overcome the fallen, broken, sinful human flesh. We have to overcome the ideology of this world that says, look out for yourselves and for your family and, and to heck with everybody else. Let them figure it out on their own. We must die to ourselves and, and start understanding what God's call for us truly is when we are born of God. Christians overcome the world. The infighting, the excuse-making, the survival, fittest, survival of the fittest attitude have no place in the life of a believer. And they have no place in the church. It's not just that we believe in God. We're born of Him. We are His children. We are His ambassadors. We are His representatives in this dark world. We are His light in this darkness. So we must love Him and obey Him joyfully. And that means loving others, and especially those who are in the family of God, joyfully, no matter what the world around us thinks, no matter what the world around us is doing. Our faith is simply, our faith is not simply about what we say we believe. Our faith must impact the way that we live. It's not just about saying something and saying, oh, that's my faith and I'm a Christian. Our faith must impact the way we live. It must affect the way that others see us actually living our lives. Not the way we say we're living our lives, but the way people observe us and say, that is different, and that's actually how he's living his life. We don't obey in word only, but in word and deed. If you've grown up in the church, you probably know a lot about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. You were at a vacation Bible school this last summer. You learned you this great song about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right? You learned that. And, and we probably all heard then that it's not the, the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, the one. And while we'll not be perfect in living out all of those fruits of the Spirit, we are called as believers to be growing and, and pursuing all of those things in our lives. And that's the same concept that we see here in 1 John. We can't pick and choose the things that we like or the things that, that we're already good at. If we're born of God, we're, we're called to obey God and to love others fully. End of story. 
So in 1 John here, we, we see some observable, observable fruit in Christians. So we're, we're not going to look at all of these, but throughout the book of 1 John, here are some of the ways that people will know that you and I are believers in Christ. In chapter 1, 2, 3, it says that we'll practice truth, righteousness. In chapter 1 and 2, it says we'll walk in the light as Jesus walked. In chapters 1 and 2, it says we'll confess our sins and have forgiveness. In chapters 2, 3, and 5, it says that we will keep or obey His commandments, like we see here in our passage today. In chapters 2, 3, and 4, it says that we'll love one another and love the brothers, and it says that as well in chapter 5. In verses 2, 4, and 5, it says we will overcome the world, we'll overcome the evil one. In chapters 2 and 3, it says we'll do the will of God, we cannot keep sinning. In chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, it says that we'll confess the Son and that we'll believe that Jesus is the Christ. You see, it is humanly impossible to keep that list. Every, just those things that we see only in 1 John. But if we're born of God, the Holy Spirit resides in us and He empowers us to obey. And we are called to joyfully obey and to pursue all of those commands in our lives. And while we will not be perfect on this side of heaven, a changed heart will cause us to desire to love others. It will cause us to love God. It will cause us to love and cherish His commands and want to obey them. That is the evidence of our overcoming faith. That is the evidence of something that is genuine and real that has happened in my life so I no longer am living like the world around me. I am living for the one who saved me. In our passage, faith, love, and obedience are, are inseparable from one another. They're woven together in these verses to show us what it looks like to have a genuine faith that overcomes the world. And as John talked about when he prayed, our hope is that you are here this morning and you know that kind of hope, that you have that kind of faith, the kind of faith that helps you to overcome the world, that gives you the, the power to say no to sin, to love the brothers, that gives you the power to joyfully obey God. If you're here and you're just trying to do it all on your own, that's not overcoming saving faith. Submit your life to Christ Trust in what He has done for us. Trust that His death on the cross, His burial, His resurrection from the grave gives you forgiveness. And that, that you must just trust and accept the free gift of salvation that He has offered to you. That is overcoming faith. That is the kind of faith that will change you. So as we wrap things up together here this morning, we will have a chance to fellowship with other Christians. And... Somebody may do something that you don't like. They may cut in line in front of you. They may, they may be like, oh, Dwayne doesn't really need that wheelchair. Why is he going to the front of the line? You have a chance to obey Christ, to love the brothers. That's what fellowship is. Fellowship is a chance for you and I to, to, to say and to study God's word together and then put it into practice as we are meeting together. And that doesn't just happen here. It happens out there. and It happens in the world around us. And the people that you work with, they see you interacting with other Christians who are way different than you, but yet you still have this love for them. This love that seems unreal. Because it is. It's from God, and it's different. 
We have the opportunity to demonstrate what overcoming faith looks like. And, you know, we don't just get to choose what a Christian is. God tells us that we, owe, that we love all those who love Him. The last thing I want us to see together this morning is that, that this passage of Scripture, you may not catch it without diving in deep to it. It's a, it's a logic argument called a sorites. It, it, it means uh, a sorites is like, you can pronounce it either way, so I'm, I'm told. A sorites is like, think of a chain of arguments and logic statements. And all of these things must be true for it to be true. It's kind of like, Pastor Mike, this is the audience participation part. What is this? What kind of grapes? Is it a bunch of grapes? Sure. Yes, this is a bunch of grapes. Is this a bunch of grapes? What about this one? Is this a bunch of grapes? <laughs> no. no. Israel, is this a bunch of grapes? No. He was participating. Every individual grape is not a bunch of grapes. But, 1 John the fruit of the Spirit, calls us to be this. We don't get to pick and choose the things that we like or the things that we're good at. The logic argument of a Sorites says that all of those things have to be true. That's what a Christian is and a Christian looks like. In First John, that's what it means. Yes, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, and then we love others, and we obey God, and we love God, and all those things have to be true. That's genuine saving faith. I can't just say, well, I love God, and that's good enough. I love God, and because of His grace and His mercy, I obey God. And all of these things combined together is what it should look like. Too often, we're trying to find the irreducible minimum. What's the least I can do and still be a Christian? God's Word says that's not how it's supposed to be. We shouldn't be looking for the irreducible minimum, the easy way out of things. If you're born of God, you're called to love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And instead of looking for a loophole, we should joyfully submit to God, obey His commands, love Him with all of our heart, and love others in the same way. That is a faith that can overcome the world. This morning we're going to have the music team come back up here at this point. And they're going to lead us in singing that great hymn of the faith, that, that faith is the victory. Because of our faith, because we're born of God, that is the only way that we can joyfully live a life of obedience to Him, a life that honors and glorifies Him, a life that, that says that Jesus is my Savior and you should know Him too. And then after the team leads us in uh, that song, I will come back up and close us in prayer and do some announcements for the fellow.